You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay <laughs> out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. So far, I've managed to stay COVID-free, despite the fact that Los Angeles has the highest COVID rates in the state, so I'm calling that a big win for me. I didn't know anybody who got COVID in 2020 personally, but I know 10 people that have it right now, so that's what's going on here. Anyway, this week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got a movie I actually realized I drove by when they were shooting it upon seeing this movie. It's called Licorice Pizza. So I'm going to help you out right now. If you don't like indie films of any kind, Licorice Pizza ain't for you. It's, It's indie to the max. I myself absolutely love indie movies, so I absolutely love this film. Licorice Pizza is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and follows a teenage boy and a young woman in her mid-twenties who grapple with the challenges of growing up and feelings for each other in a less creepy but still technically pedophilic Harold and Maude situation. But it's one of those you'd be like, eh, it's the 70s, so it's not real, but, you know, it's problematic. Otherwise, other than the light pedophilia, um, this film is right up my alley. It was kind of weird. The storytelling was phenomenal. Equal parts, a love story about its two leads, who both of which whom had never acted before, which I thought was incredible considering their performances. But yeah, it's as much a love story about those two as it is to Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley. It's definitely a film I'll be seeing more than once because there's so much packed into its two hours. It is a hefty, hefty film. All in all, Highly recommend this one. Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the life of a man who became fascinated with the magic of light and shadows and the equipment that could capture it when he was just three years old. When he grew up, he would become one of the pioneers of cinema. His name was George Eastman, and his company Kodak was the leader in motion picture film until the digital age effectively wiped out their business. But I'm getting ahead of myself. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. George Eastman was born July 12, 1854, in Waterville, New York, the youngest child of George Washington Eastman and Mariah Eastman. The elder George owned a nursery and sold roses and fruit trees. The younger Eastman was largely self-educated, but did attend a private school in Rochester, New York, after the age of eight. In the early 1840s, his father started a business school, the Eastman Commercial College in Rochester, New York, where he taught bookkeeping and penmanship. 
Unfortunately, Eastman's father's health started deteriorating, and the family had to give up the barn and move to Rochester full-time in 1860. The elder Eastman died of a brain disorder on April 27, 1862. To survive financially, as the patriarch had left nothing for the family to fall back on, and to afford George's schooling, his mother took in boarders. The younger George Eastman was quite a lonely boy, often playing by himself. But he was also a crafty young man and would make toys and puzzles to while away the hours. After a cohort saw one of Eastman's trinkets, however, and asked to play with it, Eastman realized that he could make another one and then sell it. An enterprising young businessman was born. Eastman enjoyed the feeling that making money gave him, and at the age of 14, he dropped out of school to become an office boy at a local bank. During this time, he became a diligent logger of every single cent he spent, a habit that would only increase in diligence with age. When he was 23, Eastman walked into a photo store in Rochester to buy a camera to capture pictures of a plot of land he hoped to purchase. He had seen all of the wealthy men that came into the bank and noticed that most of them were in real estate. He decided that he should probably get in on that as well as he strived to be a very wealthy man. Now, Eastman had never taken a picture in his first near quarter century of life, and based on what we learned last week about how difficult photography was in the 1860s, 1870s, he can probably discern from that that it wasn't a cakewalk back in the 1850s either, because it was pretty much the same process. Eastman struggled with the newfangled contraption, was intimidated by the amount of crap you needed to take with you just to take said photo, and... Unable to figure it out without professional help, he eventually hired a photographer to give him lessons on how to use the device. Remember, we're in the wet glass plate days of photography right now. If you didn't listen to last week, listen to last week. We go into it. It's, it's arduous. Despite how cumbersome photography was in this era, Eastman fell in love with the technology, but realized that there just had to be a better way to take a damn picture. So, Eastman set to work each night after work, poring over photography journals, eventually discovering that a group of British photographers were experimenting with dry plate photography, meaning that there would no longer be a need to bring a portable darkroom with you when you went out to take pictures because if the plates were dry, they didn't have to worry about them becoming dry because you took it on the dry plate. Easy peasy. Not many Americans read the British photo journals at this time, and because of that, George Eastman got a jump on his American contemporaries. Just one problem. Well, there were a few problems. Eastman was a high school dropout who had never studied chemistry, which, as anyone who's ever worked in a darkroom can tell you, is a pretty big component of the photo developing process. But that did not stop our buddy Eastman. He was still living in his mother's home and would spend his nights at their kitchen table struggling to create dry photography plates. He would pour the chemicals onto the plates and bake them into the oven, which I'm sure smelled phenomenal. He would then test the plates by photographing the house across the street from them, and after a period of trial and error, Eastman actually figured out a process in order to take dry plate photos. A fellow photographer eventually saw the pictures Eastman had taken using his new process, bought some for himself, was super stoked, and eventually recommended them to the Anthony Company, a New York-based photography supply business. The Anthony Company was super impressed with George Eastman and offered him a contract. With that Anthony money backing him up, Eastman opened a dry plate factory at the age of just 26. He opted to be the treasurer of his company, however, instead of the CEO. He wanted to look after that money. 
During the early days of the Dry Plate Company, Eastman remained working for the bank, which is where he would start his day until 3 p.m., which is when he would go to the factory. He would repeat this cycle daily, showing up to the bank with black stained fingers from working with the chemicals at his factory. This cycle continued until Eastman was passed up for a promotion by his boss at the bank, who had given it to a relative of his because nepotism, and Eastman quit in a rage. Several of his now former co-workers told him that he completely like blew up his life and that this photo thing was never going to make a bunch of money. By this point, though, Eastman had six employees at his plate factory and was selling 4,000 of them a month, and that showed no sign of slowing down. Photographers were eager to get their hands on Eastman's plates because it made the photography process infinitely easier. But Eastman was no longer the only name in the dry plate game. Bigger companies, ones who could pay super smart science guys to come up with better dry plate recipes than Eastman, and he just could not rival this with his self-taught know-how. To combat the rising competition, Eastman hired Harry Reichenbach, a science student from the University of Rochester. Reichenbach's only job was to experiment to come up with a better emulsion process. Reichenbach knew nothing about photography, which is how Eastman wanted it. Eastman also had another idea, one that would change photography forever and one that would eventually lead to moving pictures. Glass was heavy and breakable. So what if there was something significantly more lightweight and portable? Enter rollable film. Eastman figured out how to take the photochemicals and place them onto paper, which was then rolled and placed on another invention, a film roll holder that would attach to the back of a camera and then feed the paper, emulsified paper, through the camera. Bye-bye glass. Eastman immediately bragged to colleagues that he was about to revolutionize the entire market. In the spring of 1885, George Eastman debuted his film roll holder and rolled film at a convention in London, which focused on new inventions. Eastman's film holder won him several awards, but there was far less fervor than Eastman had been betting on when it came to his rolled film. No photographer jumped on Eastman's bandwagon at all. The rolled paper just didn't look as good as glass plates. So in short, roll holder, yes, yes, yes. Rolled film, no, no, no. Eastman took this failure personally and was likely more than a little embarrassed because he hella bragged and now found himself in a bit of a rut, both emotionally and financially. The question now was, would his entire business fail as a result? The company managed to trudge on, providing photo finishing services and also selling photo paper for prints. But by 1887, Eastman grew listless. His business was doing fine, but not good enough for a man of his perfectionist standards. What could he do to get photographers to buy his invention? Well, the answer was to find somebody else who would buy it like the common everyday Jack and Jane. So he invented a camera so simple an idiot could do it. Eastman went about town hiring different craftsmen for different things he would need in order to make his camera. Somebody to make a box that would house the machine once it was done. A machinist that could make an ultra-fast shutter. An optometry company to make the lenses. And within a month, 
Eastman had made a camera. In summer of 1888, he began running newspaper ads for what he called the Kodak camera. The camera was basically a lens, a shutter string to take the pictures, and a winder to move the film inside the camera. It looked like a box with a lens on it. There was no viewfinder, so you just kind of had to aim, point, and click. When the 100 pictures that came with the camera were taken, the patron would then send the entire camera to Eastman, where the company would develop the film and send back the pictures, which were mounted on a cardboard card, and their camera would also come with it reloaded with film several weeks later. Where did the name Kodak come from, you ask? Well, Eastman made it up. The images coming out of Kodak were also soon called snapshots after a hunting term. Of course, there was also issues when it came to privacy, as they were always be perverts trying to take pictures of people in vulnerable situations. But other than that, by and large, the Kodak camera was a pretty big hit. Eastman Kodak would soon be developing 6,000 images per day. Eastman was soon traveling the world over, trying to open Kodak stores in other markets. While in London, Eastman befriended an American couple named George and Josephine Dickman. George was a businessman and Josephine was a singer. Historically quite socially awkward, Eastman made fast friends with a couple whom taught him how to buy art and antiques, giving him the cultural education he'd never received. Eventually, George, the other George, not Eastman, would be made the manager of the Kodak London branch. Despite the popularity of the camera, the Kodak camera was a spendy boy, and few could actually afford such extravagance. So, once again, Eastman found his innovation limiting. The camera, at that time, cost $25, which was about $730 in today money. So that's about $7.30 a picture, which is crazy impractical. Part of the high cost was the need of glass during the development phase of the film. Glass was still needed in order to print the image from the emulsified paper. But if Eastman and Reichenbach could find some clear substance to place the emulsion on in order to do away with the glass, well, that would be just swell. It was also easier said than done, as the two tried several different mediums, including rocks, moss, and seaweed, to no avail. A clergyman, of all people, would be the first to experiment with a type of plastic called celluloid. In Newark, New Jersey, Reverend Hannibal Goodwin had been doing so since 1886. Like Eastman, he had a curious mind and a love of tinkering, so much so that it worried his congregation. How could he be focused on God if he was messing around with plastic? In 1887, Goodwin, who was also a photographer, managed to do what Eastman could not. He managed to create film out of celluloid and filed for a patent. Two years after Goodwin had filed his patent, Reichenbach had too discovered the magic of celluloid and had begun experimenting before finding a formula that got the job done. Eastman then applied for a patent on their celluloid film. Due to Eastman's thorough description of what was on the film and how it was made, Eastman too was given a patent for transparent film. Goodwin, of course, would challenge this. In a move of counting one's chickens before they hatched, Eastman immediately began building a humongous plant on the outskirts of Rochester. As a reward for figuring out the whole celluloid thing, Reichenbach was given 50 shares of the company and was made the head of the plant that would become known as Kodak Park. Just one problem. 
Kodak Park couldn't make the film fast enough, which pissed off Eastman. Eastman was not the nicest boss in the world, and in a Jeff Bezos-esque move, he would get pissy, for example, if he saw too many people going to the bathroom more times than he thought was necessary. He was also particular about how pencils were sharpened, and even how the janitor swept the damn floor. He also loved to yell at people and nitpick, especially Reichenbach, who would become his favorite whipping boy when the factory failed to meet expectations and the film began to expire. Reichenbach and several other of the company's chemists would be fired in 1891 after Eastman found out they had been planning on going out on their own to start their own film business. The decision to do this would be costlier than Eastman could have imagined. The quality of the film tanked so much that he had to briefly stop producing film. To pile on, in 1893, an economic depression plunged the company into debt. A revolving door of chemists were hired in order to make the emulsion for the Kodak film, but all were fired shortly after they started. In late 1893, Eastman hired William Stuper, a photographer, not a chemist, but one who had been making his own dry plates. The formula he used was based on ones he learned abroad when he was working in Europe. In spring 1894, a new Kodak transparent film was released that was so good, even professional photographers started using it. It was so good that it helped the motion pictures finally take off. Transparent film allowed inventors like next week's subject Thomas Edison to develop the first motion picture cameras. Within only a few years, Kodak was selling motion picture film more than any other product. That film saved Eastman Kodak. We'll talk about the basic mechanics of cameras more next week when we start getting into the first movie cameras, but the need for flexible, transparent, fast-moving film was crucial for motion pictures as that film needs to capture 24 frames per second in order to look like one natural motion. Eastman was the first to produce this widely. By 1896, Eastman was selling a film especially made for the usage of the motion picture. In 1898, Eastman popped back over to England to form Kodak Inc., making his company international and giving him an international monopoly on motion picture film. He and Dickman went with several investors to make this happen. After a series of meetings, however, Dickman entered the Kodak offices, doubled over, and had to be taken away in an ambulance. Dickman had to receive an emergency surgery in his own home to no avail. He died six days later on November 15, 1898. Kodak was officially formed later that day. That day made Eastman a millionaire. Eastman used that money to buy out smaller companies in order to get tech that would make the Kodak process cheaper than ever before. In 1900, he released the Brownie camera. The cost? $1 or about $20 today. The camera was named after a storybook character in order to appeal to the children of the day. A gateway camera, if you will. Hook them while they're young. More of the brownie cameras would be made in 1900 than the 12 previous years the original Kodak had been around for. So you'd think everything was sunshine and daisies, right? Nope. Remember Reverend Goodwin? Well, he was now threatening to sue Eastman Kodak for infringement. Eastman refused to settle, of course, which led to a long and arduous court case that ended up in him losing. This loss could have cost him as much as $25 million. But 
He was a crafty, crafty man and using his vast network of influential people was able to negotiate this down to about five million. Soon after this, Eastman was the sixth richest man in the United States. In 1905, the lifelong bachelor moved himself and his mother into a 37-room mansion that had a staff of 40 people. He ran his house with the same frenetic analness with which he'd run Kodak. He was so rich, he had an organist play for him every morning starting at 7.30 a.m. Josephine Dickman returned to the States after the death of Eastman's mother in 1907, which devastated the lifelong mama's boy, and would run the events and parties at her friend's home that the eternally socially awkward Eastman would struggle with. The pair were so close that many thought that they would marry, but this never happened. Some close to the couple even referred to Josephine as the love of Eastman's life. In 1912, the now 58-year-old began fretting over what he wanted his legacy to be. Eastman wanted to ensure that Kodak would be around long after he was not. To do this, he opened a research laboratory at Kodak Park, which would always strive to remain at the cutting edge of photography. He also began donating amounts of his vast wealth, about $100 million, which in today money is about $2.8 billion, so the other dude was loaded, to places like MIT, which had become a feeder school of sorts for him, to get young, talented scientists. He built a theater, a music school, and gave many gifts to the University of Rochester in order to beef up the tiny town's CV in the hopes of attracting more people to want to live there. In 1925, at the age of 71, Eastman retired. William Stuper took over as president. Eastman went traveling all over the world in his retirement, but that doesn't mean he was no longer the type A-est type A person you'd ever met. For all of you who know me personally, you know how much I love to itinerize a trip. This dude's travel itineraries make mine look like I scribbled everything onto a post-it note and then jammed it into the bottom of my purse. He planned every meal, outfit, the amount of bullets he would need for the murder safaris he went on, everything you can think of the dude had typed out. He was a planner, to put it mildly. But his age was beginning to show. He became thinner and slower and had trouble lifting his feet. It is believed by modern physicians that Eastman had likely developed something called spinal stenosis, which would eventually land him in a wheelchair and render him incontinent. Some days, the pain he was in was so great, Eastman rarely left his own bedroom. Afraid of mentally deteriorating, Eastman took his fate into his own hands. On March 14, 1932, Eastman had a few friends come over in order to witness a change in his will. He kicked them out around noon, saying he had a note to write. Then he retired to his bedroom. Not long after, his staff heard a gunshot. Eastman had gotten in bed and fired a single gunshot into his heart. He was 77 years old. At his bedside was a note that said, To my friends, my work is done. Why wait? Thousands of people attended the funeral of George Eastman. He had given some of them jobs, most of them a nice city, and he changed the world of photography and helped create motion pictures in the process. All in all, I think we can all say, a job well done indeed. And now, just because the company's still around, some quick highlights of what happened to Kodak. Three years after Eastman's death, Kodak introduced Kodachrome, its first color film stock. It would be in production for 74 years. 
Throughout World War II, the company would also manufacture hand grenades. In 1958, the company began selling an adhesive they called Eastman Number no. 910. You'll know it better as Super Glue. Kodak continued to be at the forefront of photography until the digital age came in starting in the mid-1970s. They actually had a chance to be quite at the head of it as they had developed a digital camera in 1975, but had dropped the project in fears that it would affect its photographic film side, which made up most of its money. Kodak sold 90% of all films sold in the U.S. that time, so why would they want to make something that could effectively kill that? In the 1990s, Kodak announced a shift to digital as digital became more more prevalent over a period of 10 years, but then they didn't really do that. In fact, they tried a lot of aggressive marketing campaigns to slow the inevitable shift to digital. They did eventually relent, and by 2005, they were actually the leader in digital camera sales just two years after releasing their first model. This was no victory, as eventually they were lowballed by cheaper camera companies, and each Kodak digital camera actually lost the company $60. In January 2004, Kodak announced that it would stop selling traditional film cameras in Europe and North America and cut 15,000 jobs, which was around a fifth of its total workforce at the time. On June 22nd, 2009, it was announced that Kodak would stop selling and producing Kodachrome by the end of that year. In 2012, despite having made some progress financially, Kodak filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy production. Their stock had dipped to an all-time low of 54 cents per share. They had 13 months to turn the company around. On February 9th, 2012, Kodak announced that it would no longer make digital cameras. Instead, they would focus on printers, inkjet presses, and software. Kodak shifted its focus again and managed to get out of bankruptcy less than two years after filing. Today, the company has five main branches, print systems, enterprise inkjet systems, micro 3D printing and packaging, software and solutions, and consumer and film. The late 2010s, the company spent a lot of time throwing metaphorical pasta at the wall to see what would stick. They manufactured a smartphone called the Kodak Ektra that did meh. They dabbled in making tablets, same story based on the next to nothing I could find about them. In January 2018, they announced they were coming out with their own crypto called Kodacoin. You guessed it because your white frat bro friends have never mentioned it to you. That also went nowhere. Kodak did bring back Ektachrome, which was their home movies equivalent film, as well as a camera to accommodate the film in 2018. From the looks of things, this is still around for hipsters with rich parents. I'm guessing that's who the Ektachrome is for. So yeah, despite a drastically different market than the one in which George Eastman entered in the 1870s, what once was just a dry plate photography company lives on for now. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the man whose innovations and money 
who would give us the foundations of American cinema and whose greed would indirectly lead to the rise of Hollywood as the U.S. capital of motion pictures. Yep. It's finally time to learn all about Thomas Edison. We'll also discuss his unsung right-hand man in the motion picture business, W.K. Dixon. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.